0: Bloods and Fertility, Contextualizing Bereshit 1-11 through 11, by Professor Shalom Holtz, Shiro number 178. Now's the time to get your Tanakh ready. Okay, um, I'll tell a brief story before we actually go on the clock, which is that there is somebody in the upper administration of a certain school in a certain city on the East Coast uh, who was in graduate school with me, uh, said person in the upper administration, I will not give even a gender. Uh, arrived at the first day of class with a very 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 well-known professor of uh, Tanakh at the University of Pennsylvania that much I'll say uh, and I took out probably this one uh, and this administrator thought, oh that's what a good idea bring a Tanakh to a seminar on Bible um, yeah, <laughs> And uh, you know uh, that administrator has uh, you know, since moved on and, she, and it's a wonderful person, um, but I always remind that person about the first day of class in 1999. Okay. Um, I'm supposed to also, and now we're going on the clock I think, I'm supposed to also, if it works out fine, uh, to mention that we that the Yomei'yun are uh, in celebration of some number of years of the founding of this yeshiva. 50? 50 years of the yeshiva. Uh, I was here uh, in the yeshiva um, uh, you know, for a gap year in '94-'95, uh, I just took a walk around. Certain parts have not changed. This was not here. Mm-hmm. Um, this room did not exist. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm. This is probably one of the proudest moments in my life that I'm standing on the other side of the desk, teaching at Har in some capacity, um, and I can't help but mention um, our, the leaders uh, of this institution at the time, Harav Lichtenstein and Harav Amital Zichonam Livracha, uh, who in one way or another inspired what I do today. Um, we're going to start actually without the Tanakh um, in uh, the year 1873. Uh, the year is 1873 and we're uh, we, we're, our, our main character for the moment is a man named George Smith. Yes, that was his actual name. Um, there's a little feedback, or, oh no, oh, now I'm hearing myself from this side. Um, George Smith was one of the first uh, students of what we call cuneiform, that is the uh, wedge-shaped writing of the, uh, of. Primarily the area that is Mesopotamia, that began in southern Mesopotamia spread throughout the Near East. In 1873, Smith was working in the British Museum and he had uh, a tablet, right? A clay tablet, which would have been about as big as this actually, not a bad, um, okay. Uh, About as big as that, Uh, maybe a little bit bigger actually because this particular tablet is a little bit longer. Uh, and um, as in m- many cases, when you when you work with ancient materials, you often have a sense of what's going to be there before you actually read it, right? You don't go in uh, completely blind. You have a sense that what you're looking at is probably important because it came from, uh, I mean, in this particular case, it was part of um, one of the world's first libraries built by the king, the last Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, who was something of a megalomaniac about collecting these things, collected everything he could possibly, and the British Museum had been digging or, you know, kind of the, what, yeah, the British Museum pretty much had been digging uh, in uh, the remains of his library and Smith knew that what he had was probably a literary text, which means a story, right? Um, And I will just add as a, you know, if if we, we know the kind of the Um, the makeup of what we have in cuneiform, most of it is actually not literature. It's not stuff you'd want to read, take home and look at at your bed. It's mostly economic records. Think of us and paper, okay? I know it's on its way out, um, but um, everything you do on paper, if you think about all the stuff you use uh, paper for, you actually don't use it mostly to write literature, right? Um, most of the paper in the world goes to, you know, what in Hebrew they call shtarot, right? Um, which, by the way, is an Akkadian word in Hebrew. Uh, shtarot, uh, you know, documents. And that's most of what we have is economic, legal, and so on. But in the library, we actually have what we would call primarily literary texts, right? Literature, French belles lettres. Uh, anyway, Smith had to have it, the tablet had to be cleaned, it was dusty. And you don't just clean it; you actually had to use a professional curator who was out to lunch at the moment at the British Museum. So he had to wait. He gave it, and he got it back. And he—and uh, now I'm quoting to you pretty much from one of the earliest histories of the field that we call Assyriology, the field of the study of Assyria. It's uh, got the—you know—a title that only the British could give it uh, by a man named Wallace Budge. Okay. Budge writes in his Rise and Progress of Assyriology, got the title, right, okay, okay, right, it's a t- very British title, yes, The Rise and Progress of Assyriology, which is early 20th century book, writing about 1873, Budge writes that Smith took the tablet and began to read the line that the conservator had brought to light when he saw what his reading and here I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, now I'm going to directly quote, Smith got out of his seat and said, I am the first man to read that after more than two thousand years of oblivion. Right? So he is encountering a text I'm going to, for the first time in over two thousand years and yes he's aware that this is something important. He's now read it and he says I'm the first person to read it in two thousand years of oblivion and According to Budge, in the Rise and Progress, he is reported to have begun to undress himself. And this is one of the famous moments in Assyriology, we like to talk about Smith undressing himself. Now, again, in the British uh, mode, um, remember, right, we're, he's a post-Victorian, maybe he's a little bit Edwardian, a little bit Victorian, Budge is. So undressing yourself is not what we would think of as an American, certainly not. Uh, certainly not in modern media. Probably he took off his jacket, okay? Um, That's the going understanding of he began to undress himself. Um, And, uh, okay, so it was an exciting moment in the history of the field in 1873. Smith knows he's very important. What was this that got him so excited? Well today we're going to look at that, what exactly got him so excited, why it was so exciting on its own, And why is it exciting for us as students of Tanakh? What Smith was looking at became known as the deluge tablet. Um, I would use a blackboard, only there's a guy in the back who really can't see, so uh, no, nobody can see beyond a certain point here anyway, so there's no point to this. Um, The deluge tablet, the tablet that describes the flood, deluge, right? The flood. Um, The deluge tablet was so famous, um, like Helen of Troy, it launched a thousand exc- uh, ships. Uh, it, um, the London Daily Telegraph, uh, spons- as a result of Smith's discovery of the deluge tablet, the London Daily Telegraph sponsored an archaeological dig, offered a thousand British pounds, which even today is a lot of money, back then it was all the more, uh, for further excavation leading to more tablets in this story. If you, can, if you could find more of this, you know, we'll pay you a thousand pounds, right? Or not really, it was really more like we're sponsoring it, go out and find it, right? Okay, so they sponsored the New York Times. If you go back to 1873 four, you can read on the front page about the excavations at Kuyunjik, that's Ashurbanipal's library. You can read about the excavations ongoing and how Smith reports that he's found more and so on, right? This was the news of the day in 1873. What was so exciting? Well, what I want to do now is understand that, why it was so exciting and to use this as a case study or maybe perhaps a um, um, let's see, can you hear me in the back? Oh, can you lower the? Vo- I don't know if I can, but if volume. Well, the problem is I like to move around. Sorry. All right, let's see what happens. If sorry. Okay, if there's an audio AV person, people are worried about it. I don't know what we should do here. Okay, hold it like this. Is that better? Okay, cuz the back of the the back of the room does have to hear. I'm I, I and I and I have to talk to my wife later tonight. So, what? Correct. But if I put down the microphone, no one hears it. <laughs> okay. Let's also um a few ground rules. Um I there will be time for questions at the end. Okay? So, um I No. Okay. Okay, Um, I'm concerned about yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Fine. Let's try that. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, I apologize for this. uh, You know, let's not let the technical get in the way. Okay. We're so some ground rules before we go any further. I will ask questions and I will ask for answers but as they say, okay, please raise your hand when you are ready to answer. Don't just shout out, okay? Um, it's just in a room this large with this many people, I find it hard to manage the shout out. So please hold your questions. If, you have a, if you're concerned about memory, jot down the question. You probably won't miss much by jotting things down. And feel free to come up to ask the question at the end. Okay? Um, and uh, you know, I'll make sure to have time at the end for questions and also Um, I'll be here afterwards. We have about a 20-minute break afterwards so you can certainly come up afterwards and ask specific questions. What we're going to do today is study the first 11 chapters of Sefer Breshit and we're going to uh, read them together with what ultimately becomes known as the, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and specifically what Smith was holding in front of him which was the 11th tablet of what we now know is uh, what even Smith knew was the 11th tablet in a series of tablets, a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Okay? By now, most Western uh, English speakers know about, have heard of this story. It's actually one of the few really good stories that survive. Okay? Most of what survives is only of interest uh, if you're interested in ancient religion, um, but this is really a good story. Okay? Uh, almost as soon as it was published, authors around the world uh, began uh, appreciating it as great literature and perhaps even the world's first great piece of literature. We can debate that too. But it really does reward reading. Uh, So if you, you know, if you get a chance to copy, it's on the internet. Get a good edition. The best editions are by a guy named Andrew George. If you want to just know, we have a very good edition now. It's Feldman Penguin. You can get it paperback. There's all kinds. George's translation is really great. Anyway we're going to look at the 11th tablet. We're going to start with that um, and talk about why it's so exciting. Then we're going to learn a little bit about what we know about that 11th tablet now and a little bit of the discoveries since 1873 and why those really are even more important for appreciating Prakim Aleph to Yud Aleph and Sefer Bereshit. So what I'd like to do now, if you look at your handout, you'll see that I, item 1, or Roman 1, on the first page, which continues on to the second page, letters A, B, C, D, E, and F, and maybe even G. Uh, No, F, right? A through F, okay? One A to one F. What I'm going to do, I'm going to try anyway, pedagogically, is I'm going to actually make you do a little work, okay? Okay? Um, What I want to do is, uh, I'm going to divide the room. Or break up the room into A B C D E F six. Okay, so this group over here, from the you know, Shalom, raise your hand. Okay, sitting on his side of the room there. Okay, that from the aisle to the window, you do item A. Okay. Okay. From the that row where Rabbi Field is sitting. Okay. See, I go. I got some hacks in the audience. Okay. Forward to me, item B. Okay. A, B. Okay, this row, continuing the line all the way to the wall. Okay, gentleman with the black, with the blue stru- check shirt, raise your hand. Going forward, C. Okay, A, B, C. In the, from the lady with the green jacket, raise your hand. To the back of the room. Yeah, to the back of the room. Okay, you do D. Okay, the middle section back there, from the lady with the black hat to the g- cameraman. Or next to the cameraman. Gentleman with the black shirt. Okay? Right? That's E. And everyone else in the back, F. Okay? All the way in the back, F. Not a letter grade, just a designation. Okay? A, B, C, D, E, F. Okay? Each section that I've done here, I've given you the English is a quotation from the Epic of Gilgamesh, from the 11th tablet, the Deluge tablet. And in Next to the actual uh, Roman letter, the English letter, you have uh, a, a, a citation. Breshit, this, Perak, this, Pasuk, that. What you need to do is find those psukim in your Tanakh in digital or print, okay, and read the Tanakh, then look at the Akkadian text, the Babylonian text, and tell me why I juxtaposed the two, okay? Um, what did, what's the importance of, why are they together, okay? Now, um, it may be that it'll take you less time. If it does take you less time, you may go on and look at other ones, okay? Other parallels that I set up. This is just a way of involving the entire room in the process. So, take, uh, let's say, five minutes of your time, study the psukim together with the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I'll pull you out again in a minute, okay? Okay. Um, stop where you are. I hope you've had enough time to at least glance at one set of sukim that I gave you. Uh, if you, Some of them were a little bit longer chunks, others were shorter, and I know that the, we have multiple skill levels here, so all of that together, that's why we have me to bring it all back, okay? Um, so I asked A, right? Group A, okay? Can someone from Group A, you don't have to repre- you're not representing anything, what did you find by the, from the comparison? Yeah? Uh, there is no mention that the gods created the world. Okay. And there is no reason given. For the okay, so right now, okay, so the gentleman over here has said there's no reason given, and it doesn't say that the gods created the world. What? Let's focus our answer when I ask you to report back to me. Focus your answer on what there is that's similar rather than what's different for the moment, okay? We will get to what's different, I promise. But let's first talk about what's similar and why Smith is so excited. Yeah? It's a divine decision to bring the flood. Yes, there's a divine decision to bring the flood. right? It, you know, it's actually, the great gods decided to bring the down the deluge and the pasuk reads, Vayomer uh, Hashem, emche et she'abaratim adof ha'shamayim, ki Right? I regret having created humanity. I'm going to destroy them. Yes, there's only one God in the Hebrew Bible. There are multiple deities in the Akkadian. That's a difference we will account for later on. But let's note that, right? As um, was just said, right? There is a divine decision to bring a flood. Okay. Group B, what did you find there? Yes. Um, talking about the command to build a boat. And to cover it with pitch, Mm. and then he says he sent on board all his kith and kin. That would be Noach with his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. Good. Right. So we have a hero. And also the beasts of the field and the creatures of the wild. Good. You are going to have a flood, a cosmic flood, right? A flood that's going to destroy everything. You want to make sure someone is going to survive, right? And lo and behold, we have an our story. Our man's name is Noach. Okay. Right. In the Mesopotamian story, I didn't actually tell you his name. Okay. His name, it's actually going to be important, it's his name changes, okay? Um, in this version of the story, his name is Utnapishtim, okay? You don't have to remember that. It's not Gilgamesh, okay? It's Utnapishtim. I once actually gave an exam, uh, or well, I was the assistant grading the exam, and. Um, The professor told me I couldn't write on the board all the different wrong ways of spelling Utnapishtim in the exam. But it was quite funny, like we had like 80 students, there were probably 60 different ways of spelling the thing. Okay, back to our story. So we have a hero who is going to be saved from this flood. He has a seaworthy vessel. And I want to focus in, just for a moment, on the word in the Tanakh. If you look at the Pasuk in Breshit, Perek Vav, okay. Pasuk, uh, pasuk Yudalid. Okay? Pasuk Yud Vav Yudalid. Breshit Vav Yud And what is the word? One word, there's a one-word answer for the entire group. What is the word that is used to designate the waterproofing mechanism? What is Noah to use to to it to waterproof his vessel? Kofer, right? You have a verb, translated usually as pitch. Okay? Um, you see that I wrote one Akkadian word, you're going to go home with one Akkadian word today, Okay, and a few names, but one Akkadian word, Kupri or Kupru, uh, depending on where it functions in the sentence. Okay? Um, kupru, okay? you can hear the similarity, yes? Kofir Kupru, write three. You know, write the same. It's a Semitic language, folks. Okay. Akkadian is a Semitic language. It works just like Hebrew. Three-letter roots. Okay. Uh, roots of three letters, and the sounds are exactly the same. Not much. You know, the right. You can the fey and the pey. We can account for after class. Okay. Um, but now, what's important, and this is something that has been pointed out. Most of, most of what I'm going to say today, by the way, you can. Uh, there's some reading you can do in understanding Genesis by Sarna and um, the articles that I cited at the end by Tiklafir kensky but um, what has been pointed out here is that we actually have uh, in Pashat Noach not the native Hebrew word for what Noah is doing right For the pitch word, the word the thing that he's using, if you were a good Hebrew speaker, you wouldn't say it with Kofir. Okay, and Sarna cites another example of a person, actually a woman, who is going to build a seaworthy or water safe, watertight vessel, right? In Sefer Shmot, okay. Who does this? Well, Moshe's mother, right? Okay, she's actually not called Yocheved there, but okay, Moshe's mother, the woman. If you look at the pasuk, and I wrote it down here, so it's pasuk Shmot, parak pasuk Gimel. What is the word that is used? Go look it up. It, you know, Okay. Okay. Turn on your, you know. Okay. Okay. Yes. Chapter 2, verse 3. Okay. What does she do? This woman has this child. She has to go. She's going to put him in the bushes at the Nile. What does she do? Vatach mirah ba chemar u Yeah. Okay. Chemar and zefet are the two things that are used. What's not used? Good. Okay. okay. Right. Okay. So if you were going to do this in good biblical Hebrew, right? Okay, well, or in standard biblical Hebrew, let's call it that, if you're going to be a purist about this in Ivrit Mikrait, in biblical Hebrew, you would do it the way Moshe's mother does it, right? Bachimar Uvazefit. Okay? If you're doing it, Noach's doing it with kofer, with a word that is a, an Akkadian loan word. Okay? The word. so. The word kofer, and this is why this is important, and why I'm dwelling on this, the word kofer in Parshat Noach is different from the word kofer anywhere else in the Tanakh. Okay? If you, the word kofer exists all over the place. Can anyone give me an example? What? Kapara, good. right? Okay, yeah, that, okay same thing, right? Okay, the kofer also, ish kofer, nafsho, right? You pay your whatever it is. They're all related. Never, except for here, does it mean to caulk it with pitch. Okay, So two things about this word kofer. Number one, it's being used funny in Hebrew. Right? It's never used to mean this in Biblical, in the Tanakh. Never. You can go look at your concordance afterwards. Okay? Never is it used to mean pitch over or you know, make waterproof or use it for waterproofing. And what's more, we know how you would do this in the Tanakh. Right? How you would say this in Biblical Hebrew would not be to use the word kofer, but rather, what word? Zefet or Chemar, right? and Tavtach Rabba, Chemar or right? So, what this indicates, in all likelihood, is we have here what we call a smoking gun, okay? Um, a smoking gun that suggests, what does a smoking gun mean in the movies, right? That the guy shot it, yes, right? A smoking gun means that, right? You have hard evidence that something's going on, right? It looks very much like Parshat Noach, or the story of uh, the flood, Um, incorporates an Akkadian word, that's pretty clear, into the story probably because it borrowed the story from that civilization. It shared the story, you want to call it sharing, you want to call it borrowing, you want to call it it was under the influence. All of those are possibilities and you can go to graduate seminars and exactly how this might have happened. Um, The short story of this is that the epic of The the, the flood story, let's not talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, but the flood story um, was an important cultural um, item, motif, you want to call it that, literary work. And the language Akkadian was the world's first lingua franca. It's not even right to call it lingua franca, right? But it was the world's first general language, okay? Um, And much like American, or let's call it English, I won't offend anyone, much like English is today. Okay? And French was about a hundred years ago. Okay? And Latin was once in the Middle Ages. People who did not necessarily speak Akkadian at home learned to write in Akkadian because that was what you did. That's how you learned to write in fact. Right? With the language, and the writing specifically came literature, right? What are you going to write? How are you going to learn to write? You're going to learn to write by copying stories, by, by and things like that. We actually know that these some of these stories, not necessarily this one, but some of them were used as scribal training. Bottom line, much like Mickey Mouse, right? Today, you can go anywhere in the world and you can say Mickey Mouse, and almost everyone has a picture of him in his head, yes? Um, or Coca-Cola, right? That kind of a thing, is very much what uh, the Akkadian and Mesopotamian civilization in general, the status of Mesopotamian civilization enjoyed in the ancient world. In the world out of which the Tanakh grew. In this part of the world, you know, thousands of years ago. What years are you saying approximately? End of the story. Okay, let's hold questions for the end. Okay, approximately the first millennium B.C. Second and first millennium B.C. Okay. 2000 BC to zero. The lingua franca part of it, okay, is 1500 until 1000, almost 700. Okay. If you need the historical, okay, and I'll go go on with this a little bit, maybe afterwards with the questions, but let's just acknowledge the fact that the Tanakh itself says this is where they came from, from the land between the rivers. That's there. Okay. Uh, Avraham migrates from Ur Kasdim, all likelihood there, okay? At almost every point in the, they have that wonderful timeline that they distributed in our bags, almost every point you have on that timeline, there is a direct connection between this part of the world where we are right now and the part of the world that's now Iraq, okay? Um, either because they were dominant in the region, that is, they, we were actually, the, the, this land was part of that world, part of that t- um, political entity, or because of cultural diffusion. Okay, so no matter when you want to put the Tanakh, you know, the writing of the Tanakh, and I'm certainly not going to get into that today, uh, the story of, of Breshit, no matter when you want to put that, you have a point of contact with um, with the story uh with, with Mesopotamian civilization. And it all boils down to, at least for me, right, and this for today for us, that word kofi. Right? There is that smoking gun, the vestige of That connection, or the proof that that connection even existed. Okay, let's go on to item C. We've got the gods deciding, or a divinely decreed flood, a hero who has to build, uh, a protagonist who has to build a seaworthy vessel, or a vessel that's going to be waterproof, okay, and bring survivors, you know, family and animals, etc. Item C. Okay, can I get it? Yeah. Okay, right, you have a description of the st- destruction and what do you what did you see? What did you find? Clay, clay covering. Yeah, everything is clay, right? Everything is back to zero, right? In Mesopotamia, they're going to see clay because that's what that's why they wrote on clay. Yeah? Right? Because it was there. Um in you know, a lot uh, right? We're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but the right? There's there's that word again, right? Khemar, right? Notice Okay, right? The chemar became the stuff that they used because that was where they were. Okay, that was what was there. Okay. Good. So you have this destruction that everything, everything had turned to clay, flat like a roof of a house, complete and utter destruction. The gods decree it, deities decree it, and it's so it so it happens. Okay? Next, item D. That's the group back there. Yeah. Somebody. Uh, we did C. Now we're at D. Who's the group back there? Somebody, don't be ashamed. Over there? Okay. D. Good. Uh, not just one. In, in our story, in the Tanakh, it's multiple mountains, actually. Hare Ararat. Okay, The mountains of Ararat, which we usually translate as Urartu, which is our modern-day Armenia, Okay, Eastern Turkey. Um, you don't want to go there today. Okay. Um, okay. And there are even people. One of my professors used to call them archaeologists. A ark Ologists who go looking for it. Of course, you're not going to find it, even if it, even if it. Let's say that you know whatever, right? Okay. The ark would have disintegrated. It's wood. Okay. It doesn't survive. Not likely. Okay. But anyway. All right. It lands on a mountain, much like the, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mount. What do you say? Nimush. Right. Mount Nimush held the boat. Okay. So, again, number one, divinely decreed flood. Number two. Protagonist saved with all the others in a seaworthy vessel. Number three, the flood actually happens. D, the the ark rests on a mountain. Okay. E, can I get a volunteer from the E group? Yeah. Uh huh. right? You have a bird test. A bird test, right? Now it's not perfectly parallel, okay? It isn't exactly the same story, right? You've got this orev that's going back and forth the entire time while the yonah is one yonah, then another yonah, and then a third yonah, okay? All the while the orev is going back and forth. The implications of that are for another time, but clearly you've got this test of the birds. one of my favorite examples, right? You have this, right, very specifically, okay? Um, so, you, again, flood, survivor, flood actually happens, right? Um, resting on a mountain and a bird test, and then the F group in the back. What do you have at the back? What do we What do we find there? You have to speak up a little bit. Yeah. Sorry, the animals came out of the ark. Mm-hmm. Right, so you have a sacrifice at the end, an offering, a korban at the end. Okay, and um, by the pr- the protagonist, the, the the speaker here, who's atracha, who's Utnapishtim, tells Gilgamesh, "I made a korban, I made a sacrifice, and the gods smell the savor, the re'ach Nichoach, and they come. Okay, uh, and they come to this uh, to this thing, and the same thing, I mean, you know." Um, Allowing for the differences, and we're gonna to have to talk about those in a minute, allowing for the differences between polytheism, and I'm not necessarily talking about one versus many, but just the nature of the way things work. Um, and again, that's for another time. The, uh, overall, you have the story ends with a sacrifice, or we think it ends with a sacrifice to the deities, right? which is then received through the sense of smell by, on either side of this, right? both in Mesopotamia and in, uh, in the Tanakh. Okay, so what I've done so far, okay, and this is sort of uh, this is part, you know, sort of chilek aleph, is to, to sort of to recap, is to demonstrate, I think, um, here that the story of the flood, parashat, let's call it parashat Noah, okay, um, the deluge story in the Tanakh has its likely origins in a story from Mesopotamia. In the story from Mesopotamia, if we want to call it that. Right? In the story that we know so far, in that tablet that George Smith discovered. Okay, so far that's what we know. We know that it came from that story. And this is why Smith got so excited, of course. Right? Why is it exciting? Okay? Right? Because we have here uh you know a, a remarkably parallel set of stories. And no matter how you want to take that, you, know, you want some, I imagine that Smith actually thought, well here was confirmation that the flood actually happened because somebody else is telling us that story. Okay? I don't think we think that way anymore. I don't even know if Smith thought it that way. Right? He was just excited because here's a story very similar to what he knew from his you know, knowledge of scripture um, and no doubt that he knew this. Okay, right? He knew Tanakh. I'm not doubting that for a minute. Right? He was very well aware this story and it's not just you know like they always tell me oh yes every civilization has a flood story similar this is not that okay this is not just another one of the 80 or whatever many civilizations have their flood stories right this boil, and why do i say that i say that number one on linguistic ground right number one we've got that smoking gun Kofir, right that tells me that that word doesn't belong that word would not is an akkadianism right there sitting there and more generally you've got this accumulation of similarities that leads me in that direction, okay? So with that, um, I'm now going to just sort of take a minute or two to talk and give you some more uh, background on what we know since 1873, okay? Right, so we're that many years later, we're coming up on 150 years uh, of the discovery of the Epic of Gilgamesh. I'm hoping they'll, they'll mark it in some way. Uh, anyway, um, about a hundred years later, um, a little bit before and, you know, going forward, it was discovered that what is now the tablet of the flood tablet, the story that Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh in the Gilgamesh epic was actually a separate story originally. Okay? Does not It belongs to the story now, but it originates in its own story. Okay? It originates as a separate story that was incorporated into the epic of Gilgamesh. Okay? so And that story, and here this is a little bit, you have to just remember this name. That story we call the Epic of Atrachasis, okay? or Atrachasis, as people like to say it. Okay? So that Epic of Atrachasis was basically incorporated into the flood. The flood part of the story was incorporated into the Epic of Gilgamesh. Okay? All right. So the original, so what we, what we thought of as, you know, the Gilgamesh epic and Parshat Noach, and there are, you know, hundreds of, you know, even before, right, they were writing about how important this tablet was. We now know that that, that tablet actually belongs to part of a longer epic, okay, that was kind of appropriated into the, uh, the, uh, the epic of Gilgamesh, okay? And if you want dates, um, somebody wanted dates here, I think she walked out, but dates, Okay, the Epic of Gilgamesh is composed in about let's let's say about 1000 BC. A little bit, yeah. And then it's and the copy that we have the copies we have now are about from 700, 600 BC. Okay, um, the Atrachasis epic, based on language and everything else and handwriting and all of that stuff, is about a thousand years earlier. Okay? about. Okay, don't you know if, you, if it turns out to be 999, don't come to Anot, note. Okay, um, it's. Closer to the type, this helps anybody, it's in the same dialect of the language of Akkadian as the Hammurabi's code. Okay? Hammurabi is about 1776 BC. Okay? So that's about how old the Epic of Atrahasis is, as opposed to Gilgamesh, which is that much later. Okay? Um, okay. Why is that important? Because we actually, once we discover this Epic of Atrahasis and the flood story as part of it, the epic of Avraham and you pointed out before, right, that the Gilgamesh epic actually starts with the flood. That's where it starts. That somehow Utnapishtim finds out there's going to be a flood, and the story goes from there. And that's great, but there's no beginning and no no real beginning and no real end to it. And in fact, Sefer Bereshit, the flood is actually in the middle of a broader cycle of creation destruction, and you can follow the language. If you go back to study the language of Sefer B'Reshit of the flood, you will watch how creation is undone for another time. Okay, you can watch the, the everything that God does in Perek Aleph and Perek Bet of Sefer B'Reshit is undone in Perek Vav Zayin and Chet of Sefer B'Reshit, and then recreated afterwards. Right? There's a new, a new <laughs> order. Oops, a new order afterwards. The same is true for the Epic of Atrachasis, which begins when the gods were men. Right? When the gods worked like men. That's how it starts. Okay? Uh, it starts with the creation of humanity. Or the, and it doesn't actually start with that, but it starts with the world at zero, pretty much. All there was were these deities, and they have a problem. Okay? The problem is life is hard. Right? They work like men. That's what the, how it starts out. That's where the, the first two lines, right? When the, when the gods like men worked hard, okay? Okay? And you already know what the problem, what the solution is going to be. You don't want to work like men. You want to have men do the work, yes? Okay? And so this begins with the creation of the world and the creation specifically of humanity. And, um, and then you get to, and then somehow the flood, there's a, there's a flood that's brought and then you have to start over again. So this, and this is the insight of uh, the late professor Tikva Frimer-Kensky, is that we now have a real parallel. Not just these, you know, kind of one-off things about, you know, oh look, there's a cute story that works out and it happens to be Akkadian. That's great. We could have done a lot with that. We now have an, a real, uh, what we would call a contextual parallel. Okay? A contextual parallel where the flood is part of the same kind of narrative as Sefer Brayshit with a creation, destruction, and recreation. Right? We can set that in. And what Frimer kensky then did was she asked a very simple question. Let's compare the pre-flood problem in both stories and the post-flood solution in both stories. Right? How, and we maybe there's something there. And that, I submit, and that she submits and I follow her, is the the, the key here. Right, So the similarities are all important, but what ends up being really important is that by showing the similarities, by situating the story in the Tanakh against its ancient background, we actually can come at what is different also. And perhaps even get to what is the message that the Tanakh is trying to send with this. Right? Some formulations of it talk about finding what is uniquely Israelite about the Hebrew Bible. That was about approximating the formulation of the late E.A. Spicer well, not so late, gone for a while now. But the key here is that you can understand, you finally understand the world out of which the Tanakh came. If you want to formulate it sort of you know homiletically, if you will, you are privileged to understand this story as B'n'ai Yisrael would have understood it back then. Okay? What if we say Dibra ki Lashon B'nai Adam? We finally have an insight into Lashon B'nai Adam. Right? What is Lashon B'nai Adam? Okay? All right. So Let's now look at the pre-flood problems. Let's look at uh, Sefer Breishit, uh, Perek Vav Sukim Hey Tiyud Gimel. Refamiliarize yourself, as one of my colleagues say, right? Uh, Remind your, remi- you know, uh, uh, what is it now? Bring, uh, how is it now? Um, remember this, or create the memory anew, right? If this is for somebody who hasn't done the reading, create the memory now. Yes. Um, okay. But uh, look at Breshit, Perek Vav Sukim Hey Tiyud Gimel. Overall. What is the problem? What? Ra. There's something bad, what else? Can you get me more specific than that? In all the psukim there. It's a little repetitive but, you know, hang on. You have to go from Parshat Breshit to parashat Noach. That's also, that may be a problem if you have a chumash or something. Yeah? God regrets, why? No, in Breshit, why? Why in Breishit are does God regret? What? He shchit kol basaret It's very good. What's? Yeah. Where do you see that? Aha. Well, we need to look in here. Okay. Yeah. What she's just said that the powerful were taking advantage of the less adva- of the less advantage. I don't see that there um, yet. We will see that in a minute, but not quite yet. Okay, Hamas Okay, so we've got Ra'ar Rabba HaAdam. We've got. Uh, that word's important. It's got nothing to do with the movement, by the way, okay? <laughs> nothing at all. In fact, it's wrong to say this, okay? It is wrong to say this on every ground, okay? And I, I, I say this, this is where I step away from the professor for a moment and just insist that the word Hamas has nothing to do with Biblical Hamas, okay? It has to do with the Islamic resistance movement. That's what it stands for. Nothing to do with Hamas here, okay? Finished. End of, end of uh, rant, back to the story. What does Hamas mean? Mm-hmm. What? Okay, let's ground ourselves in Biblical Hebrew. If you will turn with me to yechezkel, perek memhei, pasuk tet. This is not on the handout. This is a, you know, I, the handout was made about a month and a half ago, so you've got to allow for some correction. Okay. Yechezkel memhei tet. Uh, Ezekiel 45, 9. Yechezkel memhei tet. Tell me, what is the opposite of Hamas? In, and according to that pasuk, milim me ha right? Remember that from high school or wherever? Anebil shon hakatuv. is the opposite of Hamas? Tzedek, Tzedek and? Mishpat. Mishpat. Very good. Okay, Would, um, someone read the pasuk for me, please. Um, okay. So, yechezkel, perek memhei, pasuk tet. Okay, I'm going to pull it up myself. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Um, okay, Nesiei Israel, he's talking to the leaders of Israel. Hamas vashod hasiru, remove Hamas and, let's call it uh, plunder or something like that, uh, from you. U mishpat asu, remove Hamas and do mishpat utstaka. So right there, right, you know, there's what a concordance can do for you. You just go look at the word Hamas in the concordance find a good example, now I did the work for you, I told you, go look for this, right? Okay, so in the back, the, the lady in the light blue shirt who said that they were taking advantage or whatever it was there, not wrong, but it's not, it's it's hidden in the word Hamas and you need to go sort of unpack it by way of Yechezkel. So, and then Rashi is not so far off when he says Gezel, yeah? Rashi on, says Hamas who Gezel, yeah? Um, that's correct. I think that that's, you know, it's about, so, but let's call it lawlessness. I believe the JPS, if anyone has the JPS translation, they say lawlessness there, perhaps. Or corruption. Uh, okay. All right. So the pre-flood problem in Bereishit is Hamas. Lawlessness, he Kolbasar We'll throw it all, we'll lump it all together for our purposes today. Uh, and we have, you know, because we have to get moving ahead. Okay. What, according to... Uh, according to the Epic of Atrachasis, remember, right, we now have the full story. Why do the gods decide to bring the flood? Yeah, too much noise, right, okay, too much noise. The noise here, why is there noise? Too many people, exactly. Noise is not just a... The re, it, it's, not, it's more than just the result of having a lot of people in a space, right? That is true, but in the, in the ancient world, and specifically in, the, in Mesopotamia, noise was what, how you knew that a place was alive, right? It was, how, it was what signified success. It's what signified human endeavor, was noise, okay? You find it in the Tanakh also, I'm not going to get into it here, but the idea that there is noise bothering the deities is, is the success of humanity. Okay? And in fact, if you want to go on with this, the Atrahasis epic actually—the flood—is the third in a series of solutions to this problem of the noise. Okay? It's kind of like the, you know, the, the Prometheus story, or if you remember the Sorcerer's Apprentice from uh, Fantasia. How many? Can I still use that as a reference? Okay, good. Okay, right? What happens? Mickey Mouse. We're back to him, right? He's told, "Don't touch the broom." Right? Don't use the broom. And what does he do? He uses the broom. And what happens? The broom makes more brooms and more brooms and more brooms. And suddenly he's got a flood. And the magician has to come back and fix the problem. Right? Same thing here. Right? Um, okay. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it for the under, I don't know. Let's say it. I don't know. Right? Younger than me. Right? Okay. Um, or older. Uh, Any. Anyway, I, when I teach this at YU, I actually show it. When I teach Afra Hasis, I show the movie. Okay. But. Um, And you'll never forget it now, right, okay? Uh, So, um, they create this thing, man, to do the work, right? Their broom, yeah. And now there's too successful, there's too much noise, we can't sleep, right? Enlil can't sleep, right? Too much noise, the land was bellowing, right? So the problem is the noise of mankind, okay? Now let's look at the solution. If your problem is tzedek u'mishpat, is Hamas. What's your solution going to be based on your Keo? Tzedek u-mishpat. And in fact, if you go back, right, what happens? They actually say, Shofeh Dam Ha'adam, afterwards, right? God smells the Reach the, Nichoach, and everything's wonderful, and then he makes a breed with humanity, more on that shortly, right? Okay? And he gives a set of what Chazal say are mitzvot b'nei noach, count seven somehow. Even if you don't want to count seven, you still have very clearly, Shofech Dam HaAdam da moisha If you, whoever kills a human, will himself be killed. Meaning, we're going to now institute law as the solution to the problem. You don't want to have this problem again, right? You don't want to have to do this again. So yes, God makes a promise, but you also put things into place to so never have to really, uh, you know, go down to the brass tacks of you know holding it back. But rather, you put what do they call this positive. Uh, um, not reinforcement. No, it's positive discipline, right? That's a kind of you know you put in rules so that you never have to get to the point of punishment, right? I don't know. I have kids in that that stage of life where you know, no, we don't put them in the corner. We actually make an environment in which they are you know, which they don't come to the point where having to, of having to uh, act out, misbehave, etc. I'm no psychologist. There are some in this room, I'm sure, who can better explain this. But the point is that you want to stop the fl- the flood, the pre-flood problem. You have right. Rifu'ah matimala right? The rifu'ah is, the the, the the solution is mishpat, just like the problem was lack of mishpat. So now let's go to Mesopotamia. If the problem is humanity's success, right? look at the solution. What is, what is the solution? It's a little bit hard. You have to kind of read a little bit allegorically here. Mm-hmm. Limit humanity how? Population control, right, ZPG, right, okay, now I'm really dating myself, Um, I don't remember it from the life, but ZPG, zero population growth, okay, or at least limited population growth, how, let there be a third category among the peoples, let, there are the women who bear, and the women who do not bear, okay, childlessness, okay, number one that there be also among the people, the Pashitu demon, let her snatch the baby from the lap of of her who bore it. Okay? Infant mortality, okay? And establish high priests and priestesses, let them be taboo and cut down childbirth. So three, a trifold solution to the problem of the noise, right? You have to have humans, mana, we're not going to do the work ourselves, say the deities. We have to have humans, but we don't have to have them populating the world, right? Okay? Right? We're going to have, no, no child sacrifice here. It's not that, it's not there. It's on the borderline. There's, no, there's hardly any evidence for this period of child sacrifice. I heard it being whispered. It's not child sacrifice. It's women who never procreate because of health, women who do but have their children die in, chi- die in infancy, or women who cannot have children because they are uh, sacrosanct. Right? Whatever that, whatever that meant exactly in this period, who knows. Okay? So now I want to ask you the question, the final question is, let's go back and look at what does let's go look at what happens when he comes out of the Teva. Okay? Right? And here is where we begin to think about perhaps the Tanakh is not only appropriating a story, but actually responding to it directly. Okay? Why do I say that? Bingo. Right? As Professor Fringer-Kensky says, it's emphatically not about, um, population control. Right? Emphatically not about population control. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Go out there and f- populate the world. Right? There's a bra- God gives a bracha to humanity. That very point is impossible in the Atrachasis epic because humanity is this thing we have to deal with there. Right? There, humanity is a pro- is a solution to the problem of doing work. Okay? Right? We don't want to do work so we create these humans but we tolerate them and that's all. Right? We limit them and so on. Look at how contrasting the worldview is in the Tanakh in which God not only says go out there and fill it but what else? Right? What else does he say? What? In, in terms of what is it presented? What is God doing? We had the word before. With the rainbow it's an oath of what? Brit, of a covenant. Right of what's it, what does it what does it mean to have a breach? Okay, we can go on to that if we had time another time. It means that I am willing to enter into a deal with humanity. I on some level right. I mean this is almost kabbalistic. I lower myself to the point of being bound by a contract by a breach. I promise never to do this. I give you law because I trust you. Right. I I put the rules in place because you are able to follow them. Okay? So to wrap up then, right? What we've done today is, uh, before we take questions, what we've done today is we've compared the, the story of uh, Parshat Noach, the flood, with what looks like its Mesopotamian antecedent in uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and followed that by the At- Epic of Atrachasis. We've appreciated how the cycle from creation, destruction, and recreation allow, comparing the two allows us to appreciate perhaps what the Tanakh is doing with this uh, a- heritage that it has. So yes, it is borrowed. Yes, it does come from there. But that's, but it takes it and it shapes it in its own way. It takes it and gives it its own spin. Last point, because I promised you Perikyut Aleph is Migdal Bavell. What is the problem that, th- with what they, what do they say they're going to do? Why are they building it? They want to be no. The no. What does it say? Pen what? Lest we what? lest we go and spread out across the entire world. that's, that's exactly the problem, right okay. and, um, so, so the, and so the point here is that the story is ends up being about yes about a flood, but about a completely different set of values um, about a set of values that has a faith in humanity rather than, a, 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 a humanity being a burden, and so as we say emphatically, not about population control. Okay, um, I'll take questions for the final, you know, S.O. That culture. So yes. Except that the noise is never mentioned, right? She asked the question. Okay. Okay. So that is an interesting take. Okay, so, well, except when you have lots of languages, you actually have more noise. Anyway, it's, uh, the, I don't see it, if you want noise and the parallel to the noise, okay, anybody want to take a, I can give you that. That's in Zakat, Sodom v'amora ki rabba v'chatatam ki me'od, erdana v'er, he hears the noise coming out of Sodom, the cries coming out of Sodom, that seems to be an echo of this business with noise. Again, with a biblical spin. Okay, interesting point about the languages, I'm not sure. Okay, yeah? One is, um, is this based on a prior Sumerian which is even older? And number two is, uh, someone suggested is a divine intervention. Do we have to presume that the story in uh, the Assyrians or Sumerians was divine intervention or just some outside intervention? So, first question first, Rishon uh, Rishon. He asked the question, is there a Sumerian original? Okay, so he already knows a lot about Mesopotamia. Let me just catch you up. Sumerian is the, lang- the first written language in Mesopotamia. Now we're talking 3000 BC. Okay? That's about the limits of our knowledge of writing. Uh, 3000 BC, yes and no. There was probably some Su- Sumerian original flood. It's nowhere near as extensive as the, other th- as the other ones. Okay, So the best stories come from here. That's, and I did a little bit cherry picking. If you're interested, you can read a very good book by my teacher Jeffrey Tigay, The Evolution of the Gilgamesh Epic. He goes through the entire, the whole chain of events. Second question was: Do we presume divine intervention in the Mesopotamian material? Of course, there are gods there. Well, they use the word gods, but oh no 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 no! They mean gods. They mean they're given names. What's interesting there is one last point, which is how the hero finds out about it. Okay, in the Gilgamesh and in, in all the Mesopotamian versions, it looks like the deities, the person, the deity that tells. The hero go do this, right? That part that we read at the beginning, he wasn't supposed to do that, right? He did it behind the gods' back. The gods decided and commu- conv- they swore that they wouldn't tell the humans, and he went and violated that, which is again back to that story of right? They don't want the, they don't want this to happen, and the god gets in trouble, right? Okay, um, compare that with Sefer Breshi, where it seems to be you know out there, uh, you know, kind of God really wants the human- humans to survive. It's just that there's a problem right now. We have a snake. So, better than that is Yov saying, I heard from Dvar Yigunavela and so on. But yes, the snake, okay, maybe. All right. Um, yeah, we have a few times. Yeah. So, is your thesis that the uh, whoever uh, wrote the Tanakh went and uh, looked at Gilgamesh uh, and said, ah? Let, let's uh, make up that same story question is, for the benefit of people who might not hear, uh, is my thesis that somebody who wrote, the, whoever wrote the Tanakh, looked at the Gilgamesh epic and, and, wrote, it, and wrote it in Hebrew. Far um, If we were in a graduate seminar on how this could have happened, and there are such things like this, I wouldn't be so simple. It wouldn't be so simple, and I don't think it's that simple. First of all, because I don't know that it's always preserved in writing. Okay, right? These things travel, you don't have to read or even understand French. Okay, let's just take French as the example, uh, to appreciate Edith Piaf on some level. Right? Je ne regrette rien. Okay? That's an example that I might give you. Russians don't underst- Many Russians don't understand English, they know about Mickey Mouse. So the same kind of thing might have happened here. Could it be that the scribal class did have Akkadian training? and then you know with it you know because they knew the story that way so probably something like that happens where there's a sort of a moment of uh, of a leap perhaps so by way of aramaic perhaps something like that yeah Ezra wrote the, the, uh, uh, when Ezra wrote i will the, not go on record saying anyone wrote the tanakh in this room this okay. the this story on the room. okay um, yes perhaps the parallel might be that this was a known Historical event right. historical And it's like Thomas Friedman writing a history of Israel for the past 70 years, his version, and then a rabbi was from writing his version of what happened in the past 70 years, and saying the same event occurred, but they didn't understand it properly. So that's entirely possible. Um, what's interesting, though, is that it's not just that they're telling you the same event occurred, but they're using the language of them, their language, and in fact the way they tell the story, right, uh, they use that to tell their own story, okay? So, now just because it's a good story doesn't mean it's not true, okay? Right? That's a key point here. Just because it's got literary value doesn't diminish some, I'm not here to say yes or no on the flood, okay? Please don't go home and say either he said it happened or he said he didn't happen, okay? That wasn't the point here. And if you want to do that, we can talk about that in another at another time. But what is clear to me is it's not, there is a polemic here about this flood story, um, but it's more than just they told it wrong, right? Because I'm, I kind of know about their telling of it, right? It's more than just Thomas Friedman telling me about Midianat Yisrael because it happened. It's kind of like Thomas Friedman, if Thomas Friedman were to read a Hebrew story, and to kind of rewrite it uh, in some way or if the Rov were to read the, the the Thomas Friedman and you know insert things along the way or something like that okay right? so it's you're you're getting we're getting closer to a good formulation but we're not quite I'm not going to sign on 100% okay uh, that brings us to the end of the time we have I'll be here